0: Let's pray, shall we do that? Father, thank you for the gift of life. We thank you for the cross of Jesus. We thank you that on that cross, you did something for us so utterly amazing. You went into the tomb for three days in that ugly, dead, chrysalis You did something beyond which most of us could ever understand. But on the third day, you came out of that tomb alive. And God, for that, we give you praise in the name of Jesus. And everybody gave a hearty amen. Amen. I wondered whether I should actually tell this story, but I think I shall. Um, Good Friday uh, morning... My wife uh, was with her mother, who is 100 years old plus six months, or eight months, almost 101. And like many advanced dementia cases, uh, she has some times when she doesn't know us at all. And sometimes there are uh, very lucid times when she's with it. And understands her daughter Cindy that she calls Cindy and uh, she's aware Uh, Friday morning um, my mother-in-law has never been particularly open to the gospel all of her life there was one occasion where she had prayed sort of a cursory prayer you know Jesus come into my life and uh, we never saw much change from an outward point of view, uh, Friday morning during this lucid uh, time. Well, she came out of the tomb, so to speak. Cynthia was able to lead her uh, to understand what we just came to understand, uh, again, through the story of the tomb, and ask if she would like to pray with her to invite Uh, Jesus into her life for whatever length of time her life here on this earth would remain and she said yes and she followed her in this prayer and um, it was a very special time to watch a 100 year old woman uh, do what she could do from the standpoint of her uh, earthly vessel to open the gate of her life and allow Jesus by his Spirit to come in and give her life and birth. And um, I didn't think I was going to get through that story. And it's a miracle, in fact. And I share that to say as we go along this morning and Understand what Jesus did, who he was, and what he did, and all that he accomplished for you. Uh, Some of you may be here this morning and come to a realization uh, that perhaps there's more for you. And you will have that invitation to simply, in your quiet way, say, Lord, uh, here I am. Uh, So let me begin. I won't actually read uh, the resurrection story, you're familiar with it. Uh, we've had it illustrated uh, to us in amazing ways. Jesus is not uh, here. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is risen. So this morning I want to share, if I may, just a little bit about uh, the what I call the mystery of the resurrection, and we will get to uh, the Fisher-Price Castle by and by. Um, but Uh, The resurrection is actually a tremendous mystery. And for any of us to say that we understand all about it would be foolish. Um, In the scriptures, the word mysterion doesn't mean mysterious per se, like, ooh, mysterious. But it simply means that uh, a mystery remains outside the range of, of natural and unassisted human understanding and therefore in order to understand the mystery of the gospel the mystery of the resurrection the mystery of the church the mystery of the gentiles the mystery of godliness seven or eight different times we find Mystery in the New testament in in order to understand uh, mystery in the Gospel, we realize that it takes um, divine assistance which comes to the in the form of illumination uh, uh, of revelation. God must turn our lights on or we remain in darkness. Uh, God is the one who gives the illumination like these bulbs illuminate this worship platform. It does not come from yourself nor can it. God, however, gives the illumination of the revelation revealing the mystery to our heart and that and that alone is what uh, creates the new life. It brings the dead, dark caterpillar in chrysalis form, the dead person in the tomb, alive to become a live, living spiritual creation, if you will, a new creation. God has to turn your lights on. I am so thankful that there was a time when Jesus turned my lights on and turned me from darkness to light. The mystery of the resurrection is larger as part of a much larger story. Uh, it's the larger story of the good news. We call it the gospel. The scripture calls it the gospel. It begins with the loss of God's most highly prized possession. Back in the garden, uh, God created man and woman in his own image. He created them, and then he literally breathed into them the breath of life, and they became a living soul. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about that. The gospel, however, begins with God losing his most highly prized possession, the man and the woman that he created. God created you and me, Uh, in his own image, in the image of God, he created us. What made us so unique is not that we were made independent from God, because that is a fallacy. What makes us so unique is that God created us, and by virtue of breathing into us, uh, he gave us life. You see, and it's, it's this flesh container. God created us to be a container for the purpose of not living independently, but for the purpose of carrying around His presence. And you know the story. They were tempted, and they were seduced, and in their seduction, uh, they chose another route, and uh, they were alienated. And from that point, they, in fact, Died. God said, in the day that you eat of this tree, you will die. And that spirit then, the spirit of God, the, the, the breath of God, when they died, actually departed them, which is the definition of death. And from that point on, then, there was another spirit that indwelt them. You see, the story... Comes full circle that God lost his prized possession, and man, that is, man created in his own image, uh, and to uh, the extent to which God was willing to be reunited with his prize. You see, the gospel is God lost us by virtue of seduction. And the gospel story is the extent to which God was willing to go to purchase us back and to reclaim what was his own. That's what the gospel is all about. And the resurrection is a part of a much larger story. You see, God's plan from ages past was to focus upon the coming of His Son, Jesus, if you will, Emmanuel, the incarnation. God sent His Son. Why? To redeem us and bring us back into relationship that was lost initially through the seduction and the rebellion. Not only was the possession uh, lost, but God is seeking it back and he did so through the incarnation, Jesus coming in the flesh. But not just Jesus coming because he's not a good example that we should emulate. You know, try to be like Jesus. No, this Jesus went to a cross and died on it. The crucifixion, the incarnation, God coming in the person of Jesus. The crucifixion, Jesus really died for a purpose in order to pay the ransom. that He had to ransom me back the resurrection from, of Christ then from the dead, and not just Jesus is alive. It is true that Jesus is alive, but Jesus ascended back to the Father, and from that exalted place, the Scripture says there's more to the story God would then, because Jesus was crucified and buried and raised from the dead and now ascended back to the coronation spot where he is now with the Father, the Father and the Son, then poured out the Spirit of God so that you and I could partake again of that which originally indwelt us, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus now lives in our heart. It's not just about Jesus having been raised from the dead. It's about Jesus is alive and gave to me a caterpillar, a dead in the chrysalis, in darkness person. He gives us life so that we now receive his presence into our lives. Now, there are many who presume that the Christian life is simply an external sort of thing. What that means is that I try hard. You know, I come to Jesus, whatever that means, and now I live life in my own power to conform my life to some image of what I think God wants for me. Well, there's more to it than that. Let's, let me take you briefly through uh, this story. The mystery of the resurrection actually uh, begins... Uh, the first thing that I want to share with you, I guess I already shared a few things with you, but I want to give you six things of why the resurrection is so unique and what are the implications of it for each one of us in our life. Uh, the first one is that the resurrection proved that Jesus was God. Now, this is the story, remember, of God having lost his most prized possession, and that's you. You inherited that Prepensity through our forefathers, Adam. And we are therefore alienated from God. So the story of the resurrection also is in the mix of a large in the mix of a larger story: the incarnation, uh, the, the coming of Jesus, the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, and the outpouring. God is after redeeming a people back to how they were before the fall. Containers uh, receiving and carrying his very presence. It begins with Jesus coming and saying a whole lot of things about who he was. Let me just give you a couple of those scriptures. You're familiar with them all. John 10 10, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Now, this is Jesus, God incarnate, who's now living his life, and one of the things he said is that I and the and the Father are one. Another thing he said uh, to Philip in John chapter 14, verse 9, he said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You see, we have to understand who this Jesus was. He wasn't just a good guy. He wasn't just a great teacher. He wasn't just this guy they call Rabbi or Rabboni. He, He was more than that. He was actually God who had come in incarnational form in the flesh of a person named Jesus. So he said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Or how about Colossians two twenty or 2.9 where Paul says, in him that is in Jesus dwelled all, dwelled all of the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. Now those are just three places where Jesus said something about himself. I haven't even talked about the I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the door. Uh, I am the resurrection. You see, Jesus said that he was God, and the resurrection absolutely proved unequivocally that he was who he said he was. Some of you may be here, and you know, you just because you have eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you presume you have to understand it all. And somehow in your or my finite ability, we've worked it all out that this stuff isn't true. Well, I just want to challenge you that it is true. Jesus said it is true, and the resurrection demonstrates, in fact, and proved that Jesus was God. Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 3 and 4, Jesus was declared to be the mighty Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. When he came out of that little chrysalis When he came out of the tomb He proved who he was The great I am Jesus Proved that he was God Let's move to the second point The resurrection actually proved Our sin was forgiven and conquered I'm not going to park much On any of these uh, These five or six, six or so things The resurrection proved That our sin was Forgiven you see if you don't get this if you don't understand it, if you don't or I don't personalize it for yourself, this will stay intellectual information, and you will stay outside the pale of illumination and revelation, and you will be lost for eternity, and that's a long time. The resurrection proved that our sin, our sin was forgiven and has been conquered, Uh, Romans 4, 24 and 25. I'm just referencing some things. Write them down if you want. Jesus was delivered up for our offenses. Jesus was delivered up to a cross for our offenses, for mine and for yours. And he was raised up for our justification You see, when Jesus was raised from the dead, that event of crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection justifies me, makes me just as if I had never sinned before. Some of you don't believe that. Some of you think, some of us have thought that somehow to be justified means that, well, Jesus kind of dealt with my sin in some weak, willy-nilly sort of way. And now it's up to you to work it out for the rest of your life and help pour Jesus out. Guess what? Jesus nailed us, our sin, yours and mine, to the tree, and on that, declared a holy, righteous God now declares us guiltless and forgiven and free. I'm sharing with you a biblical orthodox understanding of the resurrection via the whole uh, counsel of the good news from Scripture. You see, our sin was delivered up on Jesus on the cross, and we we were raised, uh, he was raised for our justification. Couple sub-points, the currency for this transaction has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with what came out of Jesus when he struggled and bled his life's blood and finally said it is finished. Only the blood of Jesus can justify you before a holy God and now you can stand confident and sinless before him because of the blood of Jesus. It takes no help on your part. The blood of Jesus is enough. I'm referencing a number of places. I'll only give you one. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of all of our sins. Is, is that good news or what? See, this is the good news that is resident within the heart of those who believe. Jesus was God, and Jesus came to do something. And what Jesus and Jesus alone could do is that he forgave all of our sin, and he had conquered its effects in our life if we will allow him to do so. You see, it's the blood of Jesus only. Jesus died for us, a perfect, sinless sacrifice. Sin holds sin's hold, is now canceled. Now you say, well, wait a minute, I can still sin. We're going to get to that. But you see, sin has been canceled based upon the blood of Jesus. The high court of the universe, God in all of his holiness and love has declared you and me not guilty on the basis of what Jesus did on a cross. Somebody better say something. You see, that's what the Father did for you. And if you're still wearing wearing and are wearied by your own sin, I simply challenge you to give it over to Jesus because he loves you just the way you are and he's already paid for it. He conquered it on the cross. The resurrection, thirdly, demonstrates Christ's power over death. You see, it gets better. Not only did the Father vindicate us based upon the vicarious death of Jesus, the death of another for you and for me, but because sin brought death into the world, on the day that you eat of that, you shall die. And that... Sin and that death passed to every man and every woman, and Jesus came, and in the incarnation, sinlessly living before us, went to a cross, on the cross died, went into the grave, and out of that grave he came. He proved not only that your sin was forgiven and conquered, but now death is conquered. We don't have to worry about death. We had a funeral in here of Catherine... Grumman this past week, and we sang, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. What a wonderful worship time it was. One of our our elderly saints entering into the the realm of glory based upon what Jesus did and not based upon what she or what you and I uh, have done. Jesus demonstrates, uh, the resurrection demonstrates Jesus' power Um, Over death. Let me give you a couple of references. Uh, Romans 6, verse 9 says, Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Romans 6, verse 9, we know that uh, Christ, having been raised from the dead, will never die again. But it goes on. There's more. I sound like an infomercial. But wait, there's more. (laughs) There's more. Not only did Jesus be was he raised from the dead, uh, but the fact is that death no longer has dominion over Jesus. But after the resurrection, he showed himself to over 500 people at a time. Jesus walking around with still nail prints in his hands or wrists and in his ankles. He showed himself. He ate with his disciples. He says, you can take this to the bank. I'm not a ghost. I'm phantom. I have flesh and blood. That's the kind of body that you're going to have one of these days. Why? Because of what Jesus did and because of who he was. He was God. He forgave our sin and he breaks the power of death. Uh, in our life. You see, after the resurrection, the resurrection was an unmistakable and undeniable reality that not only did Jesus break the power of death, but in Jesus, he breaks the power of your death because you, my beloved, are in Jesus if you have opened the gate of your life to him. You see, the resurrection... Uh, demonstrates and proved Christ's power over death. Number four, the resurrection proves that believers are united with Jesus. Kind of slipped into that one real casually here. But see, the, the proves that believers are united with Jesus, 2 Corinthians four fourteen puts it this way, he who raised up the Lord Jesus, come on, listen, he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with him. Now, how does that work? We are united with Jesus by this thing called faith. There's this mystical union. That's why we sing the song on Thursday night. We were here and we sang, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified your Lord? If Jesus was crucified for you, you were there by identity, by the simple thread of faith, believing in Jesus, we believe that we were actually uh, crucified with Jesus. We're united with him. Uh, We'll be raised up like him. We were united with Jesus by faith, spiritually united with Jesus. Now, I understand we don't get this stuff in our, the natural mind doesn't get this stuff. how how does that work? You can't get it by the mind alone. It can only come through the illumination of the spirit that makes us alive from the dead through the new birth. It's when the spirit enables us to begin to understand and simply in faith accept and receive that which he says is true about himself and about you. You see, we're United with Christ. When God looks at us, he only sees Jesus. Can you believe that? That when Jesus looks at you, you see all of your inabilities. I see all of my anxieties. I see all of my insecurities, don't we? That's who we are as human beings. But God doesn't see you that way, nor does he see me that way. Remember, we were created out of the dust of the ground, and God breathes into that container his spirit. Right now, we are not independent people. That is a myth and a lie of the enemy. We were made by God to contain a spirit. The question is, which one will you contain? You see, it's the spirit of Jesus. Jesus is wanting to to fill us. We are united with him. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. Romans 6, 8. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when he was raised up from the dead? This is high-level spiritual stuff that I'm trying to describe from a place of illumination of the Spirit, but you will never get what I'm talking about until it's by the Spirit illuminated to your own heart. That's why I said some of you here today may come to the place where you realize, you know, I've understood a lot. I, I, I got a lot of information, but I'm not so sure it's gotten a hold of me. That's what you can do something about today. Simply saying, God, here I am. You see, the fourth thing I'm pointing out is that the resurrection proves that believers are united uh, with Jesus. Romans 6:11 says, "Consider yourselves therefore, dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ. The fifth thing that the resurrection does is it gives us the greatest revelation of all that is Christ now in us who is our hope of glory. Colossians twenty one twenty six 26, and 27 says, this is the greatest revelation. I believe that this is the greatest revelation. Well... The coming of Jesus. It's the gospel is the greatest revelation. The the death of Jesus on the cross, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the ascension of Jesus, and the outpouring of the Spirit. The greatest revelation of that gospel, that good news, is that this Jesus who was dead is now alive, and by the Spirit desires to come and live his life in the likes of me, an empty container. I love what Duke Lineberry says. Duke's preaching somewhere this morning, I I think, but he says, you know, whether you're a crystal goblet, are you here, Duke? I don't think you are. Oh, there he is up there. I'm sorry. I love what Duke up there in the balcony says. He says, if whether you're a crystal goblet or a rusty old tin cup, it really doesn't matter because they both were made for the very same thing, and that is to contain something else. Thank you, Duke. Some of you see yourself, your container is kind of sophisticated and and beautiful. You're still a container. Some of you see your container as an old rusty tin can or tin cup. It doesn't matter. You're still a container. And Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5 or 2 Corinthians 4 that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Whether you're a crystal goblet or an old tin can, you're still a container. I'm going to finish up here uh, in a few minutes. You see, to them, the resurrection um, is the greatest revelation of all. Christ now in us. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of his glory. the mystery, this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul says in verse 26, this is the revelation that was hidden from ages and generations past, but is now revealed to the saints. Who are they? To the saints, to those who have had their spirits rebirthed to those who are made new Christ in you now uh, is the hope of glory and a final point I have up here, uh, number six, the resurrection defeats God's ancient enemy the enemy of sin and guilt has been defeated, sin was conquered, sin was forgiven, the enemy of death was conquered, Jesus rose from the dead and we Were raised up with him. But finally, God's enemy from the very beginning. Remember the snake in the garden? He takes lots of different forms. You see, his enemy, his ancient enemy, is defeated. And I believe, and I'm going to end with this illustration, is that the enemy is, remember, a liar, he is a deceiver. He is a, an accuser. Uh, he is called the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now, um, uh, the spirit that now lives in the sons of disobedience. So this, this ancient foe, we must understand, has actually already been uh, defeated. Now, I believe, follow with me five more minutes. I believe this is the greatest deception upon the church right now. In our generation, around the globe, I believe what I'm about to share with you is the greatest distortion and deception that's coming uh, from the enemy. Um, I was reading, I am reading actually, a book by John Bunyan. Some of you know that name. He wrote a great allegory of the Christian life called... The Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress is actually um, an allegory of the, well, the external Christian life. And about a third of the way through, uh, uh, he comes to the, the cross, and the rest of his journey is about the life of a believer, sort of from an external perspective. Um, John Bunyan, who was a Puritan pastor, uh, actually wrote many different things. And one of the things that he wrote, and you'll see it uh, there, is the Holy War in 1682. It's subtitled, The Losing and the Taking Again of the Town of Mansoul. The losing in the garden and the taking again of this town called a man's soul. and And what did God do in that it was lost and in order to retake it is the story of the gospel. And John Bunyan, in an eloquent way, uh, describes the inner war of a believer in the recapturing of his his heart, illustrated by a castle. Uh, in this life. Now, uh, the, every medieval castle, and this is the best I could do, every medieval castle um, has a lord, the lord of the castle. And uh, what we find is, is that um, the lord dwelling in the castle uh, gives rise to uh, how the castle functions and operates. And the castle is the illustration of a man's soul or the totality of his personality or if it, his heart, if you will. This, our, our castle, our heart is a castle and every human heart in his writing in the Holy War, he says, every castle uh, has a Lord. In the fall, your castle has had a Lord. And the Lord of that unredeemed heart is Satan himself. You say, no, I'm created to be an independent, smart person in the image of God. You were created to be a container, a, a castle, uh, a, a vessel, if you will, where the Spirit of God dwelled and that Spirit was removed, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God was removed when there was, when there was seduction and then Uh, giving in to the temptation, and another Lord spirit began to dwell in the castle. Now, we share our nature is the nature of the one who indwells us. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. And Paul said we all had our, our time with that one. So we, the, the nature uh, of, of who we are is based upon who indwells us. Uh, we share, therefore, that nature with him who is the Lord of our castle, our life, sharing, for sure, the responsibilities and consequences um, of what we do by virtue of this, this life, this heart, and this, this man. Now, when, when Jesus... Uh, when Satan is in the castle does this mean people are possessed but it just means you're going to because we're created to be a vessel there will be a spirit giving you life you might not like it just the way it is that's why the gospel concludes by the resurrection ascension and the outpouring of the spirit so that our vessels can be filled again with him so uh, when uh, a, a person comes into conviction and he begins to understand for the first time that there is an old uh, uh, something dwelling in them that's causing them to do all this crazy stuff, by and by, uh, God gives us the enabling power to open the gate of our life and invite the conquering King Jesus into the castle. Now, when that happens, Jesus takes up residence in Mansoul, in the heart of a man, in the personality of a man. And the first thing he does is he evicts the old castle dweller. Yeah. The enemy is now out. That's what Jesus did through the crucifixion, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension. Jesus evicts the old indweller so that he can come in and be the new indweller in our life. Now... I'm going to bring this full circle here for just a minute. Now, you see, the nature that we now share is no longer the nature of the old indweller, the enemy. The nature that we now share has very little to do with us. No, it has nothing to do with us. It has to do with who is living in the castle, who is dwelling within us. My nature now is a brand new Christian. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. What does that mean? It means there is now a new indweller in the castle. I am still either a crystal goblet or an old tin cup. Makes no difference. You see, that's just the external trappings. That's the human life. Jesus is now living in there. Now, let me just Think with you for a minute because this is the this is the deception. The deception is that well, um, uh, Jesus is in the house, he's in the castle, and my nature therefore comes from him. Why do I still do stupid things? You know, that's in that our question. How can I still sin if Jesus is really living and Lord in my life? Because I I can. If you haven't learned that uh, yet, now think with me about um, the unredeemed life. Good deeds, good deeds in our unredeemed life are only temporary responses, but not the real life of the real us. The real life of the real us is occupied by an enemy, but I can still do good things. Philanthropy and, you know, digging wells for the people who need water and giving money to the poor. Paul says in Romans that for preadventure, a good man would, would even give his life for someone else. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The good, the, the unredeemed man can still do good things. That doesn't make the source of what he's doing good from Jesus, it means he's simply doing temporary good things. Now follow with me. The sins we commit when Jesus is living in the castle, in the redeemed life, are temporary responses also, not the real us. The unredeemed person, the indweller being the spirit of darkness, I can still do good things. That doesn't make me redeemed by the Spirit now living in my life. Now, a spirit filled man or a woman where Jesus is dwelling, who is now Lord of the castle, I can still do uh, sinful acts in my redeemed life, but they're temporary responses and it's not the real me. What is the real me? It's Jesus in the castle. I am still responsible for for the consequences uh, and the implications of what I do, but that, when I sin, isn't the real me. The real me is a container where Jesus is now Lord. Now, here's the deception. I'm going to close with this. The enemy knows that he's been evicted. He's still the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now operating around us. Do you think he went away? But he's outside the castle. You see, if Jesus, the new indweller, is in you, he, the old spirit, Satan, is now outside of your castle. Now, during times of your flesh, man's soul, you will let your guard down, and the enemy Causes two of his foot soldiers to scale the wall when your eye gate is not vigilant, when your ear gate isn't paying attention, when your emotion gate, you know, you just feel down. And a couple of his imps scale the wall and go into the castle. Now, Satan says this. If I can't indwell them and possess them, I will bluff them and make them think I'm still Lord of the castle. So two imps jump over the wall and immediately they raise the flag, Satan's banner, and, they begin, and the two imps are just a couple of sins. And they raise the banner and say, now the castle belongs to me. Now the castle belongs to, to the, the dark lord Satan, the devil. But guess what? Two foot soldiers can't own the castle. I still have the capability of doing sinful acts But that's not who I am. Who I am is Jesus is in the castle. It is now my responsibility to understand my identity and what Jesus has done for me through shedding his blood, going to the tomb, being raised from the dead. I was raised with him. I ascended with him. The Spirit of God now fills me. And when I sin, it's not me. I'm still responsible, but that's not who I am. Who I am is a Spirit-filled. blood-bought person of the cross of Jesus. And the enemy is convincing people all over the globe, real Christians who love Jesus, that because they do this or because they do that, somehow that's their true identity. Hello? That's the deception that some of you are living under right now. And the enemy says, see? See? You can't be a real Christian if you do that. Look at what you just looked at. Look at what you just said. Look at how you just treated your husband or your wife. Oh, you just took that. Now, the proof in the reality of what I am saying is that the real person in whom the presence of Jesus is now Lord of the manor, he or she will always come back to their true identity you cannot sin for a very long time and get away with it. If you can, you need to revisit who's the Lord of the manor. See, in First John it says this. Those who are born of God cannot sin. That just means you can't live there very long. Why? because you have a new indweller in you. That's the proof that we belong to Jesus. I'm going to ask Dean to come up, and we're going to close with a reprise of that song that we did for our offering. But I simply want to summarize who Jesus is. Number one, he is God's. What he has done, number two, in the resurrection is he has forgiven all of our sin and he has conquered it. You see, number three, um, death was defeated for you. Jesus defeated it for you and you in Jesus. Believers are united with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. The life of Jesus is in us, uh, the new Lord of the manor. And finally, the old enemy is defeated. The very best he can do is send two of his imps to scale your wall and to cause you to sin and then tell you, see, you're not the real thing. It's your responsibility to evict the old soldiers. Throw their hide out. Jesus not only forgives our sin, but he breaks its power. I don't care what addiction you're in. I understand the cycles of addiction and all the pain and all the issues. But I'm here to say that when Jesus comes in to dwell in man's soul, in the castle of your life, he begins to change things. You see, it's the transformation of the resurrection in the heart and the life of people that really gives the indication that the resurrection is authentic. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for who you are when you sent Jesus. Thank you for what he accomplished for us, dying for us, forgiving our sin, and being raised from the dead and breaking the power of death over us so that now we can live in union with him and have a new indweller in our castle. I know our children are here, and as we close with this last song, maybe you're here and you go, wow, I've I've never really thought of that quite that way. I simply want to invite you to open the gate of your life. The enemy is attacking identity in God's people and convincing them that they're old, when, in fact, Jesus has made you new. I'm going to simply give you the opportunity as we close with this last song to do business with God. You know, like my hundred-year-old mom, she didn't understand everything, and nor can we understand everything. But when God illuminates the truth of the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, the outpouring of the Spirit... All you need to do is open the gate of your life and say, God, would you come in and begin your work of transforming this old house, this castle, this soul, if you will. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed. If that's you this morning and you want to do some sort of business with Jesus maybe you've known him maybe he's not lord of your life maybe you've caved in to the little foot soldiers I'm just going to ask you to do something bold and that is to take a step maybe you've never done before and just come up here and stand and that's all we will do but it is a signifying God I'm saying yes I'm opening the gate of my castle and I'm inviting you into doing a new thing in my life Let's worship and we'll be dismissed.